Good morning, AP Lit. Um, first of all, I want to let you guys know how much I miss you, and I am making improvements, slow and steady, and I can't wait to be back with you all. I know you're in good hands, and um, today I want to give you a very comprehensive review for the unit test that you'll be taking um, on Thursday and Friday this week. So on Thursday, you're going to do the essay, and then on Friday, you're going to do the multiple choice. So what I'm going to do first, I'm going to go over the multiple choice with you, and I'm going to give you a minute to get out paper and pen or pencil so you can take notes. And then also you can have Miss V share this podcast with you because you can listen to it again and again. Some of us are auditory. Um, obviously taking down notes is really important too. I want you to do both. And that should get you ready for these two tests. Okay. So the multiple choice. Let's start there. I'll give you another second to get yourself situated and get what you need to take notes. All right, so let's do the bird's eye view first, which is gonna be, what does this multiple choice look like? It is 50 questions. The first 10 cover Beowulf. The next 11 are gonna cover Grendel in philosophy. And then the last part up to question 50, so about 29 questions is gonna cover the Canterbury Tales. Um, and you also had project grades and annotations with all these things. And the test is fully integrated with the activities that we did that scaffolded you toward this test. Um, because I'm not there with you day to day in the classroom and you're not hearing directly from me, I wanna make sure that this review is really comprehensive for you. So hang tight. And again, you can take your notes and you can listen to it again and certainly reach out to me. I'll be checking my email if you have any other questions. So let's get started with Beowulf. Okay, so 10 questions. Um, some of it's historical, and then some of it is literary terms and devices, and then the last bit is going to be where you engage with quotes at an AP level, okay? So first things first, what are the basics about Beowulf? You can find this in the Beowulf packet. It should have been returned to you. So a couple of historical things. First of all, what is Beowulf written in, okay? Anybody know? Alliterative verse, okay? Alliteration. So the answer would be alliterative verse it's poetry which is verse okay it's not prose prose is literature or long form writing like a memoir or a novel etc okay a nonfiction work verse and poetry is its own category okay also what do we know about the writing of beowulf well first we know that scholars believe it was told and i want to emphasize the difference between something being told to people like the when it comes out and they're sitting around the campfires and we have that kind of form of communication versus when something is composed and written down. So there are two different answers for that. Scholars believe that it was first told between roughly 700 and 750. So you need to make sure you know that. Okay, that's an answer. So scholars believe that Beowulf was first told between 700 and 750. Okay, now when it was told, it was told about something that they believed happened a couple hundred years before, okay? And of course, this is part of their folklore. So don't mix up those times. Now, who composed it? Who wrote it down? That's something different, okay? It was written down in alliterative verse, and we believe it was transcribed by a Christian monk, and it's also an unknown author, because we don't know who that Christian monk was. Why do we believe it was a Christian monk? Because... We have historical evidence that Christianity was beginning to spread. And then also on top of that, we know that there is 
Christian elements integrated into a pagan folklore. Okay, when you read Beowulf, that's what makes it so interesting is that it's mixed between what they did and believed the Anglo-Saxons and then also that Christian theology where you can see the very clear line, the demarcation of good and evil and the idea of God and Satan and Cain and all of those things which you studied. Okay, so again, transcribed by a Christian monk. We don't know who that author is or unknown written in a literative verse told first told between 700 and 750 okay it's written in old english the original now did you read it in old english no we read it in a modernized version we looked at two different transcripts one was by uh what was his name Raphael, and that was the one that we studied in the packet and then we also studied the one by a famous poet and i think you did some comparisons seamus haney and that's a really great translation okay but what was it written originally old english okay what is Old English? It's Anglo-Saxon, okay? Old English comes from the Anglo-Saxon. Where did Anglo-Saxon come from? We watched a TED Talk on this, and it goes all the way back to Germanic dialects. What's super interesting when you study the, the English language is as far back as scholars can go, it actually locates us right to the Middle Eastern area of the world, and then they can't go any further back, which is really interesting because that's where the Bible picks up. Okay, so Germanic dialects is what Anglo-Saxon comes from. Who are the Anglo-Saxons collectively? And this again was in the TED Talk, the Anglos, the Saxons, and the Jutes. Okay, so again, what is Old English composed of? Anglo-Saxon. What is Anglo-Saxon? Comes from Germanic dialects, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. Okay. All right, moving on. Beowulf and other grand epics like this, told in the oral tradition, great folklore. You have a hero, they fight good and evil, good wins. This traditional grand epic exists for early man, why? Okay, and we talked about this in the packet, and it's in the PowerPoint. To pass down values, to teach the people their history, and for entertainment. Because, let's face it, television was not around back then. And their version of television and Netflix was sitting around the campfire and telling stories. And people would memorize these stories and pass them down. So pass down values, teach history, and to entertain. Okay. Now, what do we know about the epic genre? We need to know that Beowulf is an epic. So here's the three things I want you to know about that. It involves a traditional hero. And that traditional hero, as we wrote about in our AP essay last unit, embodies the values of the time, right? And you wrote about how he embodied those values and what we ultimately value is what we fight for. Another thing I want you to know is it's told in an objective, omniscient narrative form. So the narrator is objective, which is reporting the facts as they're seen in the story, and omniscient meaning all seen, just like God, okay? So we can see multiple perspectives as far as, you know, what Beowulf is doing, or what someone else is doing in the story. And we even sometimes can get insights to other people's thoughts and feelings. And the last one that I need to know that you know is that it normally includes vast settings in the supernatural. In 10th grade, you studied the hero's journey at large. That was um, part of the curriculum and our focus for the year when you took the 10th grade curriculum. And so this idea of the epic genre and the hero's journey is really familiar to you. Okay, 
So a couple of new terms that show up in the Beowulf unit that you studied that I need you to know is Kenning and Sejura. So make sure you look back into those PowerPoints. Your reading guide has an answer and example. What is a Kenning and what is a Sejura? Okay. And then the last two questions in this section, you need to make sure you know the components of an epic hero and there will be some quotes that you would select. So you're going to select all that apply. Um, so there'll be quotes from Beowulf and you're going to go, oh, those show his traits as an epic hero. So make sure you know what an epic hero is and their traits, which is in the PowerPoint slide. And then you're going to select the quotes that apply. And then the last question is, again, you're going to engage with quotes. There will be quotes for you to look at. And the question is going to be archetypal conflict, good versus evil is best represented by which quote. Okay. So I want you to read those quotes and find out which one. Now, on the note of the story of Beowulf, why do we study it? First, it's our first story in Old English. So it starts the English heritage. And also, it's important to know that Beowulf is the proto-protagonist, or first, and Grendel is a proto-antagonist. So he's our first antagonist. And that Christian monk ties him back to Cain and Abel, and he ties him back to the idea of like the roots from Satan, etc. So you can see that storytelling being that folklore, that Anglo-Saxon folklore being tied into those Christian ideals. Okay, so that's everything you need to know for Beowulf. I covered all 10 questions, and where can you study this information in addition to this lecture and your notes is to go back into Teams, look at the Beowulf PowerPoints, and look at your notes from that unit. If you have any other questions about Beowulf, you can email me. Um, there's no essay with Beowulf. The essay that you have will focus on the Canterbury Tales because you already did that unit test activity project with Beowulf and you did the essay. Okay, so just those 10 questions. All right, next part we're moving on to is Grendel and philosophy. So you had, we didn't, we didn't read all of Grendel. We just read chapter three. So we're going to go over that. And two things was obviously studying the text but also to introduce philosophy to you, which is very important in an AP literature course because sometimes there's an amalgam or a mix of philosophy, the arts, writing, literature, uh, visual arts, all of those things kind of can be integrated because the artist will use that medium or text to represent some kind of worldview or philosophical perspective. So what's really important as Christians is that we understand all the isms that I like to call them, all the different philosophies. And of course, this is super brief because I could teach you a whole year in philosophy. I would love to, but we don't have the time. So I want to just give you a bird's eye view of uh, isms and then measure them up against Christianity. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Okay. So Grendel, John Gardner is the author and we studied a chapter from his book. And this is what I really want you to know about him and the text, which is in the PowerPoint notes again. So you can go to the PowerPoint notes. You can see your questions. I believe that Miss V still needs to hand your Grendel packets back to you. They're on my desk. If she could do that, you'll have those in hand and you can look at them too. All right. First of all, Grendel is really, really different than Beowulf because it's an existential response. Okay. So it's an existential response to Beowulf. Beowulf is very clean, cut and dry for us modern people. There's a good guy. There's a bad guy. To be honest, they're very flat characters. Um, cause it's just like, Hey, here's what it, Epic hero looks like. Beowulf embodies it. Here's what an uh, evil protagonist or antagonist looks like. Grendel, um, embodies that they fight. 
Beowulf wins. There's a boon or a gift at the end. He saves his people. It's very traditional. John Gardner's Grendel is the opposite. We now see things from the antagonist's point of view, which is very postmodern. And it's really like what we see with movies today, like Cruella. You know, I know that movie came out. I haven't seen it yet. Um, I do remember they took the Snow White main character and they flipped that where Snow White becomes, you know, a minor character. And then, and, and I think they did that too, as, what was it, Sleeping Beauty, where the princesses become minor characters and then we see things from the antagonist's perspective. It's very postmodern. Um, and there's like a whole cult following now in postmodern literature and the arts. Okay, so it's an existential response. Existentialism we'll talk about in a second. So he's really playing with the ideas of universal truths of good and evil. And now all of a sudden Beowulf and the king and, and his people, Rothgar, they don't look so clear cut and dry good. And then you have Grendel, who was like literally the proto-antagonist of English literature. And now we're starting to sympathize with him and his point of view. And that brings me to the next thing I need you to know. It is a creative endeavor in the transformative power of point of view, okay? Now, here's a big thing I want to focus on. In that text, did Grendel have good reason to feel anguish, to have an existential crisis, to act out? In his mind, he did. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we have free will and we are responsible for our free will. So, as Christians, if someone does something horrific and heinous to us, is it our right to be grieved? Is it okay to feel certain feelings? Certainly. I mean, what I'm going through right now, um, having a couple of near-death experiences in the past year and um, many, many health problems at just 38, I've often wondered, you know, why is this happening to me? What did I do? And I feel like God responds to me that it's okay to be grieved. But it's my free will that I choose to believe and persevere and to do what I can to make sense of it. And so Grendel, when we look at Grendel, what I don't want you to do is walk away and go, oh, he was justified in becoming this bloodlust, murderous monster because of how messed up men are. No, I think what we might feel is uh, some empathy or sympathy for him, but ultimately has free will and he's responsible for that free will. And we as people, we can't go around and going, oh, well, because so-and-so... <laughs> you know, did this or that, it gives me a right to do these uh, horrible things in response. So we've got point of view. And then the last thing is, um, again, you heard me use the word postmodern. It's satirical. It's a meditation on the postmodern world because Gardner wanted to take the idea of existentialism and nihilism and some of these other isms and play with it in this prose. What if I, basically is the question he asked, took the perspective of Grendel and played out these philosophies. So it's a satirical meditation on one of the most famous hero epics that the English language has ever seen. All right, I know that was long-winded. Moving on. I need you to know empiricism, nihilism, existentialism, absurdism, solipsism, and essentialism. Okay, I know that's a lot of isms. Where do we get these from? They're in my PowerPoint. You should have taken notes. And there is a great video that you were shown for the philosophical overview that was put out by Crash Course. And I think it was John Green's brother that you watched. So these isms come from there. And again, empiricism, and I'm going to, this is going to be a gross oversimplification, but you have the definitions and you can look them up and it literally on the test is empiricism is, nihilism is. So this is very easy and straightforward. Empiricism 
okay, again, gross simplification, I want you to look into it, is I believe what I can see. So I can look at it and I can experience it. It's a sense, okay, a sense experience. Okay, nihilism is probably the most depressing term on this packet and this test, which is taking existentialism a, a step further. So existentialism says, you know, we can never really know what is, okay? It's the own personal point of view. And therefore, it's up to us through our own acts and will to define what is. Okay, and again, I'm simplifying this. But what's worse with nihilism is it takes existentialism a step further and says that there actually is no meaning in the universe and everything is pointless. So I always joke that Christianity is a smiley face because it says everything has a purpose even in your suffering because of Christ and God's divine design, right? So you get a smiley face at the end of life. Existentialism is like a straight face. You know, think about your emojis. Ugh, life. We can't really know what it is, so it's up to us through our own free will and acts to try as free agents to try to, like, make sense of it. So that's kind of like the flat face, right? Eh. And then nihilism is the sad face. That's how you can remember this, <laughs> which is, oh, my gosh, there's nothing to life. Nothing matters. There's no point. So why would I even try? Okay, um, moving on. Absurdism functions inside of existentialism. Because you're taking a truth and making it a non-truth, therefore you're saying it's a truth, which makes no sense. You're saying there's, there is no meaning, so therefore it's up to you to make meaning. Which, that completely argues with itself. So that's why existentialism isn't a good philosophical theory at all. It invalidates itself. Okay, so absurdism recognizes that. Okay, and knows there's conflict with that meaning, but you should just accept it as it is. Okay, so you're simultaneously rebelling against what is, but then also trying to embrace what is. Does that make sense? And then solipism is just saying that I can't know anything other than myself. So like only my own sensory experiences, only myself is what can be known. Okay, so this is a very strange one because it kind of invalidates that there's like that other people around you also have an experience and is equally valid. Okay. Okay, and then um, essentialism is the opposite of existentialism. And essentialism is a older philosophy that encompasses all religion and divine order and is how the world has always functioned. Existentialism is a very new 1800s, we're talking new. And when you think about the face of the planet, that's like no time at all because Really, honestly, we modernize. We got too much time on our hands. We navel gaze like we're looking at ourselves and we start to have these crises and we try to make sense of things. And so, you know, young people, intellectual people, artistic people came up and started looking at the world. We had Darwin coming forth. The Victorian period really had a lot of upheaval and society in general as it modernized started to question itself and what was and you end up getting existentialism. Well, essentialism is the opposite. So existentialism is like, oh, we can never really know what's true, so it's up to the individual. Well, essentialism says actually there's a true, divine, perfect order, and it's we, people, need to find that order, okay? Like, for example, it would say that a fork, and look at the design of a fork, it is made, it had a creator, right, with intent and with a specific purpose. The 
fork will be the most fulfilled when it realizes it's a fork and it learns how to do those things that it was designed to do. That's basically a really basic version of essentialism. Okay, existentialism would say, no, the form came first. There is no creator. There's no divine purpose in that fork. And it's up to the fork to decide what it wants to do and what it wants to be. Does that make sense? Okay, now, today, as modern people, there's a secular belief system that we're bathing in. It's in television. It's in the arts. It's in movies. And I mean, if you now that you know all these isms, you will literally see them popping up everywhere. And you can see how they fly in the face of objective truth and reality, um, objectivism, Christianity, etc. And that's moral relativism. So I want to make sure you know that answer. It is a amalgam or a combination of these some of these um, modern philosophical beliefs. Specifically, it's a sibling of existentialism. And moral relativity espouses that you can never know what is true. So therefore, it's up to the individual to decide what is true. So we can't judge that as bad, okay, over there because they're doing these horrible things. Because if they've just deemed that not horrible, to them, that's okay. So then, you know, if you have a whole group of people over here who say murder is not a bad thing, okay, well, if that's what they believe in their people group or whatever, then who are we to judge? It's all morally relativistic. Morals are relative. It's up to the individual, right? Okay, now, getting specific to Grendel. Okay, all of these isms show up in the text Grendel. In chapter 3, Grendel is emotionally overcome by the shaper. The shaper is the one who tells the stories, okay? Um, he's fascinated by the shaper's art. But it also enrages him because he's existential. He's having an existential crisis and the shaper is trying to shape the reality of things, to give story and shape to it. Also, the shaper has this unique ability to change the world and create a sense of order and meaning and beauty in a, in a universe that's otherwise chaotic. So he really struggles with that. So I want to make sure you know that. Another thing is there's going to be a quote from Grendel where... It's a longer quote that I picked out, and I want you to find all the isms or literary devices that you can find in it. So you'll read it carefully and go, oh, I see imagery in this, or I see existentialism in this quote. So you'll pick the ones. And then the last question for Grendel, and then I'm going to stop this, I'm going to stop this recording because it just covers all the Grendel and all the um, Beowulf, and then I'll do specifically a recording for Canterbury Tales to make it easier for you if you want to study on your own and not be overwhelmed, okay? So the last quote is about cognitive dissonance and an existential crisis, okay? So I'm gonna have quotes for you to choose from and I want you to find the one that shows cognitive dissonance. This is a psychological term and it's exactly what it sounds like. What is cognitive? It's the brain, it's the way the brain functions, right? And dissonance is, if you studied music theory, dissonance is like when chords or harmonies do not um, co correspond and create like a beautiful sound it really makes like a cacophony of noise so cognitive dissonance is in the brain where you have two things that are at odds with each other so I want you to find what is going on with Grendel he's torn asunder he's torn apart right he has an existential crisis at the end of chapter three because he's trying to decide is the world really coming down to essentialism and there's a clear good and bad or is it really chaos, okay? And so I want you to find his existential crisis where he has had enough.
All right, so that covers the first 21 questions of the unit test, and it's super thorough on Beowulf and Grendel. And I will be back in a few minutes. I think I need to take a talking break, and I think you need a thinking break. So go ahead and take a stretch, and then we'll listen about the Canterbury Tales. All right, thanks, guys. Bye.